Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So, um, so I'm going to talk about the surgical aspect, and, and maybe even before I do that, I'll just point out that that, that last slide that you showed about the impact of BPA on pulmonary uh, and arterectomy, the, these two therapies are complementary. I don't think they're competitive, uh, but I think having one in your program is going to enhance the other aspect of your program. <clears throat> so um, we, we've already learned about the European uh, guidelines. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to point out a couple of things here. Number one is that if your patient has CTEF, um, if they are operable, determined by an experienced center, the class one recommendation is that they, they do undergo surgery. And they do point out that that assessment has to be done by an experienced pulmonary endarterectomy center and specifically an experienced pulmonary endarterectomy surgeon. And what does that mean, experience? I would suggest 100. It's a nice big round number, uh, but I do think it takes a lot of experience to really be, be quite skilled and competent at the procedure. <clears throat> um, if we're going to talk about the operation, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Dr. Nina Braunwald. Uh, she's a cardiac surgeon from the 1960s and 70s, and, and you may notice that she is, in fact, a woman. And just being a cardiac surgeon in the 1960s as a woman is a big deal. Uh, but she was more than that. She was a leader among men. She was the chair of her department in San Diego. And she decided to tackle this phenomena way back then. Uh, she partnered with Ken Mosier, who I think we all recognize as likely the, the, the father of, of this particular disease, CTEF. Uh, and using this sort of diagnostic imaging, which is hard to imagine operating on somebody just based on these, these images, but she bravely took this patient to the operating room and using thoracotomies and hyalur collapse, she was able to remove this chronic organized thrombus and achieve a really good result in this particular patient. And this really opened up the possibility that these really sick and suffering patients uh, could potentially be cured of this disease. Uh, a lot of what we know now today about pulmonary endarterectomy, I think we, we owe thanks to these two individuals. This is Stuart Jameson, the surgeon that really defined and refined the operation that we do today. And this is Bill Auger, the pulmonologist, who I think really made this into a, an everyday operation, the preoperative assessment, the perioperative care, and the postoperative management. Um, so from the surgical perspective, we see a patient uh, that's being evaluated for pulmonary endarterectomy. So what am I thinking about? So number one, uh, does this patient have the disease? Do they have uh, mismatched defects? And do they have functional limitations? Whether it's pulmonary hypertension or not, what's more important is are they symptomatic? Number two is this idea of accessibility. How do we define accessibility? And we use the Jameson classification based on the location uh, of the obstruction. So this is a normal pulmonary angiogram on the right. And so Jameson uh, uh, class one would be at the branch PA level, which you can see from the arrow there. Uh, Jameson two would be at the lobar level that you can see there, the interlobar trunk or the upper lobe trunk. Uh, Jameson three is disease at the segmental level. And this is really obstructive disease where you see limitation and flow on the angiogram. And then Jameson four is at that subsegmental level. And, and I would say that any experienced pulmonary endarterectomy surgeon, uh, Jameson level three and above is surgical disease. Uh, for, for isolated Jameson 4 disease, it would really take the most experienced pulmonary endarterectomy surgeons to routinely uh, offer surgery to those patients. And then again, as, as I'm evaluating these patients, the last thing we, we, we think about is the patients. Uh, are they a, a good surgical candidate? Their, their comorbid conditions and functional status, as Dan had suggested before, in that 80-year-old woman with a lot of disease. 
Um, so the guiding principles of surgery, this disease is almost always bilateral just by nature. Uh, and so it's always done through a median sternotomy so we can access both uh, main pulmonary trunks. Uh, the operation is always done on cardiopulmonary bypass and specifically uh, using deep hypothermic circulatory arrest. And the end arterectomy always has to feather out into those distal tails, which is usually uh, at the subsegmental level. So we use standard cardiopulmonary bypass, nothing particularly interesting about that. We cool the patients again down to 18, uh, which, which takes a long time. We do measure temperature in the nasopharynx, the blood, and in the bladder to make sure we have uniform cooling. And it can take you know, upwards of an hour and a half to get those patients really nice and cold. Uh, we mobilize the right pulmonary artery off from behind the superior vena cava. You can see in that, that cartoon there. Uh, and we do the operation with the cross clamp and, and blood cardioplegia. Some centers don't, but, uh, but we do and find it, it, it's additive. Uh, and then you make an incision in that right pulmonary artery, uh, typically going beyond the takeoff of that, that upper lower branch, which actually uh, takes place within the pericardial space there. Uh, and then when we do our dissection, it's always done under hypothermic circulatory arrest. This is the view from the surgeon side. The surgeon stands on the left side of the table when they're doing the right lung, and then we switch sides when we do the, the opposite lung. Uh, for better visualization. So you got to find the right plane. This is part of the experience of doing the operation. Uh, this, this very simplistic cartoon sort of suggests it falls away, which it, it, it really doesn't. Uh, being able to see that right plane and then tease it apart, you have to have the right instruments. This is the Jameson suction device uh, that you see here, very blunt, very fine tip suction to get good visualization distally. Uh, and this was a game changer for us, these Wexler double action fine forceps that can get you into those very, very distal subsegmental branches. When you're in the right plane, it's pearly white. You know it when you're in that right spot. Uh, if you're a little bit too deep, uh, it's pink because you've peeled off the intima and you're actually looking at the vasa vasorum that's shining through, and that's, that's a problem. You have to recognize it and realize you're, you're potentially in trouble if you're in that wrong plane. Um, you start the plane wherever it's easy. Sometimes, like in this cartoon, it's right where your incision is and you can peel it off there, but oftentimes you have to start your plane out into those subsegmental branches, so wherever, wherever it is is where you start. Um, and then you continue that dissection distally using an eversion technique. So you're pulling the organized thrombus towards yourself and pushing away that normal intima until it, it feathers out. And how hard to pull and how hard to push, again, comes with experience. So if you pull a little bit too hard and it snaps, it will often retract out into those subsegments and you may have lost it forever. So in that particular case that Dan showed, uh, they probably had a specimen, it snapped back and then they had to go and balloon it later. Um, what's even worse, though, is if you really put your foot on the bed and pull and you tear those distal arteries beyond where you can see, you may have a full thickness injury and massive pulmonary hemorrhage, and you won't know it until about two hours later when you come off bypass. Again, the operation has to be done under a hypothermic circulatory arrest uh, for 20-minute intervals, no, no more than that. And then once you've done your, your dissection and you've closed the pulmonary arteries, you rewarm the patient. This also takes a long time. It can be upwards of a couple of hours, particularly in patients who are, uh, are large-sized. So here's, here's a couple of videos here. Uh, this is going to get you inside that right pulmonary artery before we've started the dissection. Um, I'm just going to make you a little dizzy here in the morning. And then back into that RPA. And you can see that wrinkly stuff there. That's non-obstructive organized thrombus. You can clearly see the obstruction at the segmental level. So this is Jameson 3 disease there, but we're going to get a handle on that stuff that's in the, uh, at the low bar level and lift it and use it uh, to do our eversion. So I'll show you in the next picture here. We've created that dissection plane 
and now we're doing the eversion technique. So we're going to grab that organized thrombus that we peeled off the wall and then down into the segmental and even subsegmental branches. You can see we're gently teasing away the organized thrombus from normal intima. I'm fighting with the camera right there, which is in the, that sort of confined space. But that's the technique of how you do it and how hard you pull and how hard you push uh, is something that really you gain with, uh, with experience. So what are the results of surgical uh, dis uh, uh, treatment of this disease? So a lot of what we know uh, comes from um, San Diego. So this is the experience, uh, the early experience from Dr. Jameson. This is a 20-plus-year-old paper with his first 150 cases. Uh, and um, you'll see that the, uh, the pulmonary artery pressures went from 80 down to the 40s. Uh, his early operative mortality was quite high, 9%. Remember, this is over 20 years ago. Uh, but what's notable in this publication is this is the circa rest uh, duration over time. And you can see not only uh, have his circa rest times gone down, but more importantly, uh, or at least as importantly, the, the, the error bars are much tighter uh, just as, as he's become more refined in, in doing the operation. Um, this is a more a recent paper uh, from uh, the group in, in California. You can see now with thousands of, of cases under their belt. Um, and we'll just uh, show the, the results here. We'll skip here. Um, and in the results, their, their pulmonary artery pressures, uh, their PVRs uh, are way down. The cardiac output is down. Uh, here you can see the PA systolic pressures down from 70s down to 40s, both in the early experience and in their later experience. Uh, and their circa rest times remain low in the, in the 30s, despite adding a few extra surgeons to their, uh, to their group. These are their Kaplan-Meier survival curves, really good long-term survival uh, in this patient population. And in their more recent experience, operative mortality is now around 2%. Uh, so mortality has gone down substantially as they've gotten more refined in how they do the case. Now, you may say that San Diego. How does that translate to the rest of the world? World. So here's the CTEF registry in the U.S. This was about a dozen or so centers with passion uh, in treating this disease surgically. Uh, these are World Heart uh, Classification uh, uh, pre-op uh, and then post-op. You can see from uh, World Heart Class 3 down to World Heart Class 1 and Class 2. So the vast majority of these patients have significant symptomatic improvement. And then if you look at uh, other features, the orange is the, the red is the patients that had surgery. This is use of uh, oxygen cut in half, uh, use of diuretics cut in third, and use of pH-specific therapy uh, cut in half. So really about half of these patients are effectively cured with a mortality around 4%. We wanted to look at a, a wider swath. This is looking at the STS registry, which captures basically 99% of all cardiac surgery procedures in the United States. Uh, and the database was available from uh, 2012 on for pulmonary endarterectomy. And this is the volume distribution of cases around the United States. And you can see there's one center with 400 cases submitted over this time, San Diego. And then there's a handful of centers that are doing this with really consistent regularity. And then you got like a billion centers that did like one or two cases, right? So obviously the question is, how do those patients do? And of course, they do much worse. Low volume centers have higher complications, higher ECMO, higher reintubation, and higher mortality rates. So it's a volume to outcome relationship. Uh, this is our program in Michigan, uh, and you can see that we've, we've grown. So we started slow, and now we're doing 25 to 30 cases a year, which we think is a, is a healthy volume. Uh, and then you can see our PA pressures, uh, systolic from 80 down to 40, mortality around 4%. Most of that is front-loaded in our experience. 
So we, we take photos of the specimen like you, you saw in, in Dan's talk, and, and the purpose of it is, is not to have the big block M here on game day, but also it's an important diagnostic tool for follow-up of these patients. So all these patients at six months, uh, they get a regimented follow-up, six-minute hall walk, echo, right heart cath, and a VQ. And if those patients have evidence of residual obstructive pulmonary hypertension, uh, then we'll look at that specimen, and then we'll look at the preoperative angiogram and decide should we pursue uh, balloon pulmonary angioplasty. Now, we give the, the photos of the specimens to the patients. Uh, and we have a member of our team who's a particularly talented artist, and she wanted to, to dress some of these up a little bit for the patients. And so this is some of her uh, uh, more recent work. This guy was a fireman. Uh, this guy liked to chop wood. Uh, this is a young lady who had a tattoo of a koi fish, and so we put that on her specimen. So anyways, uh, that's the nature of our program. I thank you very much for your time. There's my, uh, my digits. If you guys have any questions in your own practices you want to talk about, feel free uh, to reach out, and I think maybe we'll take it to the next speaker. Thank you very much. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.